right, everyone, it's time to get started. 12.30. Hope you had enough. There's plenty left over. I think the cold weather kept some folks in today. Our Motley crew table is missing, so give them grief next week when you see them. <clears throat> we are in Ruth, our January slash part of February study through the book of Ruth, short little book. And last week we ended with the... Uh, I think I have broccoli in my teeth. Last week we ended with Naomi and Ruth having come back from living in Moab. They left, or at least Naomi left with a family, a husband, two sons. Uh, those sons married women in Moab. And then her husband died. And then her sons died. And they had not had any offspring. And so Naomi was left with her two daughters, two widows now. She got word that there was food back in Bethlehem. She had left because of a famine. So she got word that the famine was over. And <clears throat> which meant in the book of Judges that Israel had either been delivered by a judge or had turned back to the Lord or both during those ups and down times. And so she goes back to her ancestral home as a widow. And her two daughter-in-laws come with her and she tells them, no, go back home. You have nothing if you come with me. There's no promise of anything except destitution. And one of the daughters, Orpah, uh, takes her up on it. Says, okay, I'll go back to Moab. But Ruth clings to her. And the text uses that word dabak, to cling to, to, to hold tight to. And she says the beautiful statement in chapter 1 of wherever you go, I'm going with you. Where you die, I'm going to die with you. Uh, she united as a family with Naomi and with her People, which means she also clung to her God. And so we saw last week, that's, an, that's uh, Ruth being brought into the people of Israel through her covenant faith, through putting her lot with God's covenant people and saying, I'm in, I'm all in. And this is a, it's a terrible, tragic story at the beginning because Naomi comes home and when she gets home, the people are like, oh, Naomi's back. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. He says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because God has made my life incredibly bitter, basically. And so <clears throat> that is how chapter 1 ended, with this destitute widow who also has a daughter-in-law, who's also a foreigner from Moabites, and the Moabites are hated. They had been oppressing Israel for years. Uh, Torah said Moabites were not to enter into the assembly of God or into the worship services of God for ten generations. And, and it hadn't been 10 generations. So everything about Ruth is outsider. Everything about her is um, uh, at the bottom of this, below the social ladder. Not just at the bottom rung, but below the ladder. She's not even on the ladder yet. And that's where we start chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth are living somewhere by themselves. They have no one to take care of them. And so <clears throat> chapter 2 begins. It says, now... It gives a little foreshadowing. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And that phrase, a man of standing, uh, Ishkabur Hael, it's, it means it's exactly what the angel said to Gideon when he met Gideon. He said, hello, mighty warrior. That's what a man of standing is in Hebrew. It's a, man, a mighty warrior man. So Boaz, and, and it can refer to like literal fighting, which Boaz may have done. This was right during the time of Israel uh, being in battle with some of the surrounding peoples, possibly even Moab during the time of Ehud, maybe. 
So Boaz might have been a, a fighter, or it could also mean a man of, of, of reputation, a man, an upstanding man, a man of righteous, somebody who's known, um, a who's who in Bethlehem, so to speak. So he, he was a known man, and he was from the clan of Naomi, and so, or, or her husband at least. Um, and so the way Israel works, remember you had the nation, and then you, within the nation you had the tribes, the 12 tribes, and then within the tribes you had the clans, which were like a, a loose-knit a group of families that had a common ancestor, but not at the tribe level. And so Elimelech's clan would have been of Ephrath, that the general Ephrathite clan among Judah. And then within that you had families. And so among that clan there were these families. One of the families was the family of Boaz and his people. One of the families was Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband, or dead husband. So the families, they're related. So he, he's kind of a relative, like a cousin or something, or, or maybe even a second cousin. And so the chapter introduces him. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Boaz, they're not exactly sure what that word comes from, but it sounds very much like Boaz, which is in him is strength, is what the name would mean. So uh, in him is strength or in whom is strength. And we're going to find out that there is a ton of strength in this man, uh, but none of it has to do with his physicality. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So she asks, or she doesn't ask, she announces, let me is like a cohort of like, I'm going to go do this. Uh, and <clears throat> she asked to literally scavenge. That's what picking up grain, this verb for pick up grain. It doesn't mean there's a big field of grain. Let me go chop some down. No, it means there was a big field of grain and it's already been harvested. So let me go along and pick up the scraps that remain. Think about people that scavenge through junkyards or trash heaps, or think of homeless people digging through garbage bins outside of restaurants. That's what she's asking to do, that kind of thing. And this is how people at the lowest rungs of society would get their food, is through scavenging. And, and she says, let me do it in, in behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. In other words, whoever doesn't run me off, whoever lets me scavenge from their leftovers. Now, Israel was commanded in Torah those of you that were with us in Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, Israel was commanded the landowners to leave the edge of their fields unharvested. And when they go through, when the harvesters come through, to not go over the fields a second time. That was a command of Torah. And so somehow Ruth knows about this law. Uh, and so she's hoping that people are still following this law and that someone who is that conscientious about following Torah will be kind enough to let her glean, scavenge, pick through their leftovers. And so the way gleaning would work, the way uh, harvesting would work is this is the time of the barley harvest. So early spring, the barley harvest, and then about seven weeks later, the wheat harvest. So you would go and like the grain you plant in the winter and then all the rain, winter rains come and then it grows and then in the springtime it's ready to harvest. So the first people, the men would come through and they would grab handfuls and with a sickle chop them and just by hand and then when they got to a certain amount they'd bundle them together, tie them off 
and set it, and that was a sheave or a sheaf of grain, and it would stand up. So they'd standing sheaves is what that is. And then you'd move to the next section, cut it, bind it together, stand it there, move to the next section, cut it, bind it. So in that process, sometimes you would miss a stalk or two. Uh, sometimes when you were binding, a piece would fall out, or when you were stacking, a piece would fall out. So as you went, the harvesters would make these sheaves, and then usually the women would come behind them and grab, gather and bring in the sheaves, bring them to the threshing floor. So that was the second stage. So they'd take the sheaves away. And then what was left on the ground, the scavengers, the gleaners would come through and they could take what they wanted. And so Israel's law was once a crafty landowner would send harvesters back through again to pick up all those leftovers because this stuff's worth quite a lot. I mean, you can subsist off of it. And a crafty landowner would make sure they harvested every single stalk all the way to the, complete, uh, to the entirety of their field. But Torah told Israel, no, you are not going to do that. First, you're going to leave the edges of your field unharvested. And how much is an edge? We don't know. Torah doesn't say five feet, one cubit, you know, whatever. It just says leave the edges, which meant, as we saw in Leviticus, that gave opportunity for the landowners to be generous or to be miserly. God didn't say, here's the amount. He said, leave the edges. Well, what's an edge? What do you think an edge is? I don't know. Well, leave what you think you should. So in other words, landowners could be very stingy or they could be very generous. If they were generous, they could have like maybe a lot around the edges that they left. If they were very stingy, they could harvest right up to like the stalk on the very edge and just leave that. That's the kind of th thing where God allowed for them to give in proportion to what they thought was necessary or what they thought was right. So it's a very interesting way that God built in this, this social ne uh, safety net for people. And as we saw in Leviticus, this was like Israel's version of a social welfare program. Is it allowed, it, it, it made sure that people didn't have some kind of safety net. People like Ruth and Naomi, there was something that, that, that caught them if they were destitute. But as we also saw in Leviticus, God didn't say, just give it to them. They were left with the ability to work for themselves. And so, people that are politically left-leaning, they get excited when you talk about biblical welfare programs. Yes, absolutely, amen. People that are right-leaning, they're like, yeah, but they had to work for it. Yeah, they got to work for their food, amen. You know? And the Bible's like, yeah, both, both. Those are both correct. Be generous, give of your resources, but give it so that people have an opportunity, not just a handout. And so it's this cool balance that Scripture always uh, holds that, that kind of pokes people on both sides of the political spectrum, which is always fun. And so what Ruth is doing is taking advantage of this. She's going to go work. She's not going to sit and collect her check, but she has to go work. But she's going to work because of the generosity of somebody who has more, whose income is quite unequal to hers, and is willing to give some of that or allow some of that to be shared among those who are willing to work. So it's a really cool balance uh, economically and ethically and socially that's going on. But that's what Ruth's counting on. So Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. 
So she went out and began to glean, to scavenge in the fields behind the harvesters. And I like to use the word scavenge because gleaning sounds like, I mean, I used to go to a church, there was a Sunday school class called the Gleaners. And it was, it just seemed so like uh, churchy to me. And, and gleaning, we just picture like there's been paintings of people lovingly gathering up big bundles. and she, It just doesn't do justice to what gleaning is. It's scavenging. It's picking up the leftovers. That's what Ruth is doing. Ruth is scavenging. So she, as it turned, okay, so she went out and began to scavenge in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turns out in the NIV, in Hebrew it says, and her chance chanced upon. In other words, it's emphasizing like, and just of all the luck, guess where she ended up? <clears throat> as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz who was from the clan of Elimelech. So the very man who was introduced at the beginning of this, who we didn't know anything about other than one of her... She doesn't know that this is a distant relative. She doesn't know that this is one of Naomi's cousins or second cousins or uncles or, or nephews, or we don't know the exact relation. But Ruth finds herself in this field. Just so happens, and that's the author going out of his way to say, like, oh, out of pure luck, wink, wink, because the way it's said in Hebrew is a very odd way to say it just happened upon... So the author is letting you know God's at work in all of this. But Ruth has no idea. So she goes out and she's uh, scavenging through his field. Just then, behold, in Hebrew, uh, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Now this is interesting because remember, this is all taking place in the time of the judges. And judges, as we saw this past year, was a time of constant rejection and turning away from God. So within that overall dark period of history, there are these little bright spots that we see. And this is one of those bright spots. A landowning, uh, faithful Israelite greeting his workers and greeting them in the name of Yahweh. Not the name of Baal or Chemosh or, or any of the other gods of the surrounding peoples that they constantly were turning to. But greeting them in the name of the Lord. So that clues us in that this, this Boaz guy, is, is, uh, there's something different about him. Verse 5, Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? Or, or to whom does this young woman belong? Or to whom this young woman? It's like, who, where, who is this? Where is she from? He could either be asking what tribe is she from because she's unfamiliar. Or he could be asking who does she belong to as in her father or her husband or her family. So he just sees this as a new person. Now, Think, we think of modern field operations like with big tractors and combines and fields. Put all of that out of your mind. Put every image of farming in Indiana or Iowa that you've ever seen out of your mind. Go to Bethlehem now. Bethlehem is like going through Boone or Blowing Rock. It is mountain. It, you can't find a flat stretch of land in Bethlehem. So these fields are terraced sections of land on a hillside. Many of them aren't even bigger than this room. These little plots of land. You planted where you could in this rocky, hilly region. So it's not like he has this massive operation and he see, happens to see this unknown person. You would know your people. You would know your workers, your hired hands. It, was, it would be like a family affair or a clan affair or a village affair. And you would notice if somebody's scavenging in your field because you could see your entire field at one glance. And so he notices immediately there's this young woman scavenging and he doesn't know her he's never seen her so he asked who is she or where does she belong to whom does she belong and the foreman replied she is the Moabite young woman 
who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean, let me scavenge, and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. And that phrase is maybe translated in different translations. There's about 19 different ways you can translate that phrase in Hebrew, and none of them really make sense. So it's a bit of a guess, but it's most likely something like she's been working steadily and took a little rest in the shelter. But she's been out here working. So we find out now, Ruth, we find out a lot of things through these dialogues that the narrator doesn't tell us. He just said she went out and started scavenging. But what we find out is she went and asked the foreman, the head of the the harvesters, hey, can I glean in this field? Now, she shouldn't have had to ask for that. That's a legal thing. She, She had Torah right to do that. But remember, this is the time of judges when people don't follow Torah. So she asks can I do this? And, and the foreman apparently led her. But then she asked something that's far beyond that. And it gets glossed over in a lot of uh, studies of this. But look, she says, uh, she asked, please let me get scavenge and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. See, this, the scavenging was supposed to happen after the sheaves were brought. And then you could have what's left. But she actually asked to go among the standing sheaves and pick up grain. That's going above and beyond. That's, that's a little presumptuous especially for a foreigner. That's, you're not suppo- the law doesn't say you can do that. It says you can just go behind after the, the, the harvest has been brought in. So already here, we see Ruth kind of, maybe because she's a foreigner, maybe because she just knows she's got to feed her mother-in-law who's going to starve to death at home and who's already battling depression as a widow uh, who has no one and has returned home and hates her life and calls it bitter. So she is stepping out. She's making a pretty bold request of this foreman. So the foreman tells her that, and then he's impressed. She's worked all day. She hasn't been asking for handouts. She's been asking for opportunity. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. In Hebrew, he says, have you not heard? It's a way of saying, listen up. or What I'm about to say is important. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. NIV says, stay here with my servant girls. The Hebrew doesn't say that. It says, dabak, cling to my servant girls. Same word for when Ruth clung to Naomi originally. Cling to my group now. Cling to me, to my work crew. You stay here among my servant girls who are gathering up these sheaves. And he calls her my daughter. One, this lets us know he's probably older. We don't know how much older. Some people like to exaggerate it. He's like 50-something and she's like 14. No, she was married for at least 10 years. Uh, so she's a woman, uh, and we don't know how old he is, but it's more than saying the age relationship, it's the family relationship. He sees this foreigner, this foreigner picking through his trash, basically, and he says, my daughter. He, he brings her into the family context. He doesn't say, hey, foreigner, hey, immigrant, hey, job stealer. He doesn't say any of that. He says, my daughter. So he shows this amazing grace this amazing kindness to her. He says, don't go anywhere else. Stay here. You glean with my, you're, you're with us now. Verse 9, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. Haven't I told the men not to touch you? Is what it says in Hebrew. NIV just translated, I have told the men. But he's like, haven't I told the men not to touch you? And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. So first of all, Boaz has a good boss. He already has a good rapport with his harvesters. Uh, They like him. 
we get that note right away. Secondly, he sees this woman and this foreigner picking through the, the scavenging through, and he has compassion on her, and he shows her grace. He shows her chesed, that Hebrew word, chesed, kindness, uh, uh, steadfast devotion, however it's translated in all these different ways. And he says, uh, you're going to stay here. I'm going to make sure you have enough. And so not only do you have enough food, but I've also made sure you're protected. I've, your safety is assured. And this is one of the things around the world. If you listen to uh, Gary Haugen, who's the head of International Justice Mission, he did a TED Talk. Google it, Gary Haugen TED Talk. And he talked about the number one, of, I, don't, I can't remember if it was the number one, but he said one of the, if not the greatest factor in keeping people in poverty around the world, like the global context outside of America, is lack of safety. Lack of safety is the number one thing that keeps people crushed under poverty. Corrupt police, uh, vigilante mobs, women who are afraid to go out of the house without a male lest they be assaulted or lest they, I mean just, you know, the, the human trafficking, all of this stuff. So whenever there's rampant poverty in a society, you look, that will probably be a society where safety is compromised, where the police are not adequate or are corrupted, where military warlords or generals take over, seize all of the goods and hold it for themselves. Uh, government corruption, you know, that's a huge thing, personal safety. And so International Justice Mission, their whole goal is to go into those places, use local law enforcement, train local law enforcement, train lawyers, send operatives. They, they're like modern day superheroes, literally. They go in, rescue people in those situations, free people that's whole families are enslaved in a brickyard in India, or girls who are traded as sex slaves in Thailand, or all of this stuff they're doing. Um, and so what we see here is Boaz instituting that kind of thing at the outset, like providing a place where she can work and so important, she is a widow, she has no family, she has no male person to oversee or to protect her from the other men. And so Boaz steps up and does that as well. He's like, I've given orders for none of my men to touch you. And that's, again, this, this example of his strength and of his grace. Not just providing for her physical needs, but providing for her physical safety. And I love that, especially the self-defense instructor. I love that in Boaz is he is recognizing there is a tendency and it's among men to do evil things to women. And I'm going to make sure that that is addressed in this provision I'm giving you. And then he also says, oh, and when you're at whatever, whenever you're thirsty, you don't have to go to the well wherever it is. You don't have to go to the river, which is, there aren't any in Bethlehem. You don't have to go off to a stream. You drink from the, the water containers that the men have filled. And there's some biblical irony in that too because in the, in the Hebrew mind, in the Israelite mind, typically gathering and, and hauling water was seen as the work that the other peoples would do, that the Gentiles, like the Gibeonites. Remember from Joshua, the Gibeonites would be hewers of stone and drawers of water. That was kind of like a punishment or, or a, a way of exerting influence is making someone else bring your water. And now this foreigner, immigrant, nobody is not only given, being given water, but giving water that his workers have drawn out. So his workers are giving the immigrant widow a drink. It's a beautiful picture of extravagant grace. This whole section is Boaz just lavishing grace, kindness on Ruth. In verse 10, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes? That's what she was hoping when she went out that morning. Let me glean in the field of whoever I find favor in their eyes. Well, now she realizes, and she's like, I can't believe this. 
why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Now there's a word play in this. English can't bring it out. The word for to notice is, is, comes from the word nakar. It means to take note of or to look at or to, to pay attention to. And she says, me, a foreigner. The word for foreigner is nakri. It's from that same verbal root. And it's like one who you notice because they're a stranger. Notice in a bad way or in an un, uh, unfamiliar way. So the words, they don't mean the same thing, but they're verbally related. And so it's a little wordplay. Like, what makes you notice me an unnoticeable? Is kind of the gist of what she's saying. She's amazed that her, a foreign woman, would be noticed. And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Just like Abraham. Just like Boaz's ancestor Abraham, Ruth had done the same thing. So, verse 12, may the Lord repay, and it's the word uh, yishlom, to fill. It comes from the same root as shalom. So may the Lord fill up, you could say, a repay you for what you have done. May you be fully rewarded, the same word, shalom, richly rewarded. Fully, so may the Lord fill you. May you be fully rewarded. Remember Naomi's complaint in the last chapter was, I left full, I came back empty. That's why she said, call me bitter. Now Boaz, who doesn't really know that, I mean, he knows her family history and he knows something of what Ruth's done, but he's like, may God fill up you because of the kindness that you've shown. May you be richly rewarded before the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So, Boaz here. We'll have to pick it up next week uh, in the same chapter. But Ruth goes out and just expecting to pick trash to get enough scraps, hopefully, to live off of her and her mother. Hopefully, she'll find a cheeseburger in the food bin outside McDonald's. Hopefully, she'll pick up enough aluminum cans that she can recycle them and get a few dollars to feed her family. Hopefully, you know, that's what she's going out for. And she just so happens to enter into the field of possibly the most righteous man in the Hebrew Bible in terms of how he is portrayed. Boaz is arguably the most righteous man, at least in the time, certainly in the time of the judges that there is in Scripture. And what he does is what Israel and Torah calls Israel to do. And what the prophets later call Israel to do. Show kindness to the poor, the needy, the widow, the destitute, the foreigner. And that's what he does. Everything in him, remember, she's a Moabite. They have just been oppressed by King Eglon and Moab for years. He had every right to say, I'm not having a Moabite in my field. Get out. Go to the next field. Go, somebody else will take care of you. You're not my problem. You're a Moabite. You're an enemy. You're an outsider. You're an immigrant. You're a foreigner. You worship other gods. You guys worship Chemosh. You sacrifice your children. That's what he could have said. That's what we would expect him to say. But he looks at her and he says, my daughter, come here. Don't even worry about gleaning in other fields. You're with us now. And he takes her in. And he says, we'll take care of what you need. You do your work. Gives her the chance. Doesn't give her handouts. Gives her an opportunity. 
and she takes advantage of it. And it's just a beautiful picture. This is one of the bright moments in this period in Israel's history where after a year of them doing so many things wrong, it's just a breath of fresh air to finally see an Israelite who gets it, who does it right. And, uh, and so what Ruth gives us in this chapter, and we'll see it even more next week, is just gives us somebody to aspire to when we're dealing with people, especially people who are strangers, especially people who are foreigners, especially people who are lower down the socioeconomic ladder than us. Uh, Boaz is a model for everything we should be. And so, yeah, if you have a kid, name him Boaz. That's a pretty cool uh, namesake. Anyway, we're going to pick it up next week. We're going to finish chapter two. Um, And if you want some seconds, there's some here. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next time.